Hello, friends, and welcome to the Living Truth Podcast. This is Kristen Carey. I am your host today, and I am really eager to jump into this conversation with Dr. Janice Cottle. Janice, thank you so much for joining me on the Living Truth Podcast today. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Awesome. You guys, you need to know about Janice here. Dr. Cottle is a psychologist. She is a CSAT, which stands for Certified Sex Addiction Therapist. She is trained by APSATS, and she is now on the board. APSATS is the Association for Partner of Sex Addicts Trauma Specialists. It is the uh, premier source of training for coaches and clinicians that want to work with the trauma model and work with the betrayed partner. Uh, Dr. Cottle works with partners and couples. She works with sex addicts as well. And she has expertise in so many different areas. I had to narrow it down to just one topic of conversation today. We're going to be talking about intimacy anorexia. However, Janice, you just released a book with Dan Drake. You want to tell our audience about that? Yeah. Well, one of my other passions is, is the, is full disclosure because Dan and I both seen the, um, life-changing impact going through that process can have for both partners and addicts and their relationship. Um, and we've actually written two books. One is one is uh, for the, the addict or disclosure, disclosure, to help them kind of with that process. And then the book, the, the book, uh, you know, that I, I led on is for partners preparing for the full disclosure process. And they're meant to be a, a his and hers kind of um, guide through that process so that both sides are using kind of common language, common boundary plans, um, and uh, all the guides are also, you know, all all on the same page. So how can our listeners find these books? Just go to Amazon and I would put in full disclosure um, and you'll want to put a secondary term so you don't go to the umpteen um, other books on that. I would say sexual betrayal. Yeah. Or put in your name. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. And we'll, we'll put links um, in our podcast description as well. So let's just dive right into our topic today. Intimacy anorexia. Can you explain to our listeners what it is? Well, it is at the most global level. It is when uh, one, one spouse in a committed relationship systematically withholds uh, either emotional, sexual, or, and or spiritual intimacy from the primary partner. So this is not somebody who um, doesn't know how. Um, it's not somebody at the beginning of the dating phase, you know, withheld, you know, um, you know that, that connection. It's something that pretty much happens as soon as the commitment comes into place. Um, oh, wow. So like, you mean before the commitment? A person with intimacy anorexia could be very attentive. Yes. And that's kind of why it's, I think it's so often missed by the, um, by the deprived partner is because it suddenly it's like, what, what happened? It was there and now it's not. It's like somebody shut off the switch. And usually their stance is, what did I do? Yeah. Um, and and uh, often many years of trying and trying and trying harder. Um without the realization that the other person turned the valve, they turned it to off. So is it conscious typically? 
the person who turns the valve and and shuts off the connection? Well, this is the way I tend to say, and I apologize. I'm I kind of I'm a I'm a country gal at heart, so I tend to use very basic metaphors. Um, I, I don't think that it's predominantly like premeditated. So it would not be like premeditated murder, so to speak. But you know, whether it's premeditated or manslaughter, the person's dead. And so often what I most often hear is um, like a fear of intimacy or a fear of conflict. Um, but what happens with the intimacy anorexic is they systematically time and time and time again choose to honor, pull back and honor their own fear and leave their spouse in deprivation. Mm. So when that happens over and over and over and over again, the majority of the time, you know, across years, I think there's at a minimal, some subconscious choices being made. Yeah. Yeah. How common do you think intimacy anorexia is among sexual addicts? Um, I, I can tell you kind of the original data from, it's actually um, identified by Dr. Doug Weiss and his original data had it at about 33% of, of addicts. Wow, that's high. A little bit higher rate with partners and with female addicts. Um, I assess for intimacy anorexia with every client who comes through my office. And initially, I probably found about the same results. And, and by the way, it's not something that just people who struggle with sexual addiction have. Okay. Um, I probably have much higher rates than that now maybe 40, 50%, but that's because there's so few people who are trying to treat sex, uh, sex addiction and, and intimacy anorexia that I tend to get those types of clients. I'm going to guess, I'm going to guess it's probably a little bit higher than, than a third now, simply because I, I think there's some things in a porn generation that, that set the stage. Okay, I'd love to hear more about that. Are you saying that because of the intensity of and the, the frequency at which people can view the quantity of graphic pornography? I mean, things have changed a lot, especially over the last 20 years in terms of accessibility and the, the rabbit hole, how deep and dark that rabbit hole can go. Do you think that has been a factor in accelerating intimacy anorexia? I think that's been a factor at accelerating all intimacy disorders, because particularly because people start so young now before the brain is fully developed. So now you've got like a developing brain that's captured. Um, and, you know, part of, part of what doesn't get to develop is all of those capacities about being able to be real, be real and genuine um, in a continuous connected relationship. Um, and I, I don't think it's necessarily just porn that's, in, that's going to be an issue. I think it's devices. Oh, yeah. So one of my favorite, like, studies that still blows me away is um, in the attachment world. There's some very famous research about how attachment styles get developed early on. It's called the trunk still face kind of studies mm -hmm. um, where they had a they had a, a primary caretaker who had a very good, healthy, secure relationship with a young child. And all they had, there had that, at that age, it was moms. That's that era, it was just moms. And they would have her playing on the floor with kids. 
And then all of a sudden they will tell her to go to still face, like blank your face, no, no eye contact, no connection for two minutes. And they studied what happened with children. And it's, you can actually go online and kind of watch some of those videos and it's the hardest thing on earth to watch. What's even scarier to me is probably about four years ago, they redid that study and they changed only one thing other than having both moms and dads there. And the one thing that they changed, instead of saying go to still face, they say, pull out your cell phones. And I re it's been a while, but I was a mother of young children and there's just so much stuff going on all at once. It's so easy to kind of be there and interact, but not really be present. So it's, it's maybe having pockets of uh, device-free times where there's actual real interaction. I look forward to the day when we open up and I can go to a restaurant and I don't see families who are all sitting there with all of them with their, their phones open. Yeah. Is it ever too late to start making new habits like that with our kids? Oh, I don't think it's ever too late for anything. You no. know, um, there's some impact, but when we can change and we can help be the ripple that changes them, like what we treat, teach them is that it's never too late. You yeah. can change, I can change. That gives us a lot of hope. It really does. So back to how this is impacting marriages and the coupleship. Um, what do you see happening for couples? They come into your office. Ha have they usually already identified that there is some kind of a sexual addiction or unwanted sexual behavior yeah. when they start addressing the sex or the intimacy anorexia? Or how does the treatment process usually go for you? Um, I'll just speak to kind of my clientele because the most common route to seeing me is a discovery of sexual addiction or sexual betrayal. Um, and when that's kind of early on, um, intimacy anorexia hasn't been identified. And so as part of the assessment process that I do at the beginning of working with anyone, I, I assess for IA. And so often um, often, uh, you know, I'm the one that kind of puts this term kind of, uh, you know, on the map for them is something that we also have to uh, attend to and address. Um, I do now have quite a few couples who maybe aren't right there at the beginning, kind of they've been in recovery for at least for a little bit, enough to kind of do some research. So I am having more and more and more couples come where they're already, they're already saying intimacy anorexia, and, you know, is, is the problem or is the biggest problem. So I heard you say something about that it's an even higher percentage in partners than it is in addicts. Is that because of the attachment rupture due to the betrayal or does it predate the betrayal? Um, I, I don't think we really have a lot of data, but I don't think um, I don't think the um, I don't think if it's quite often in partners, it's reactive. Yeah. So there's a difference between a prime, someone who's primary and somebody who's reacting in response with kind of what we know. And in, in my in my kind of opinion, um, intimacy anorexia um, is you know a combination of emotion, sometimes emotional abuse, um, but it's the energy of neglect. Okay, and we know that long-term neglect has a, actually has a bigger impact than overt abuse. So what I'm talking about uh, in reactive anorexia is let's say that you have been married for 20 years and for 20 years, you've been existing on problems. 
what or 20 years you've stepped out trying to be vulnerable and um, to, to get your your spouse to respond. Um, and what happens is, is that it becomes um, it becomes too risky to keep trying. Uh, if you put your hand over a fire and you know three or four times and get burned, then it's really hard to kind of do that again. The, the whole body spirit, mind, body, spirit kind of retracts. Um, and much as like um, any, whether it's a child or a, or a dog who's been neglected, they kind of like fold in on themselves. Uh, um, and so I think it's, um, I think it's more a function of long-term, you know, emotional intimacy neglect. So how to get a partner like that's listening to this, who's fresh out of discovery and they don't want their addicted spouse to touch them. They don't want to give emotional intimacy. We know as partner specialists that that's a normal reaction to the betrayal. And so that would not be intimacy anorexia. No, that would, that would not be setting boundaries and protecting yourself. Yeah. Reactive anorexia is actually is the norm. Um, and it's a trauma response. It's yeah. a trauma response to, um, to neglect that's probably not been detected. Okay. Um, it, which is quite different from somebody who went into the marriage, you know, with that sort of energy themselves. Um, what happens with reactive anorexia is that you learn over time to protect yourself. So it's a self-protective kind of mechanism. Um, and it's a, it's a self-protective mechanism if you are in a relationship with someone who might now be completely sober with sex, sex or porn, but not have addressed the intimacy deprivation in the relationship. Mm. How do you address that with a couple? Very carefully. <laughs> it, it depends for me. It depends on when, when they come in. If somebody comes in very short after discovery and there's a whole lot of triaging to get help for everybody um, and a whole lot of energy invested at, at a minimum getting um, whoever the, the sexually addicted person uh, is, whether it's the, the man or the wife to get them help and get them sober. Um, I usually kind of label the anorexia kind of early on, but um, for me, it goes on to the side burner until we can get somebody sexually sober. And yeah. I think it goes on to the side burner for the partner as well, because the um, the pain of sexual betrayal is acute. It's, you know, the words I hear is like stabbing, um, gushing blood, shattered. Uh, the pain of intimacy anorexia is very different. It's, it's um, dull and deadness and dying. And so it's for the partner, it's, it's often not until he actually does get sober sexually. And yet the, um, the intimacy anorexia or IA doesn't get better or sometimes it gets worse. You know, you can be a hero at your um, sex addicts anonymous group because you, you've been sober for six months, um, but have locked down uh, and strangled the, the flow of intimacy to your spouse you, you can have doubled down on that. Yeah. And we're, there's still large parts of the, the country, including my own, where intimacy anorexia really hasn't been recognized. Um, 
you know, as a recovery issue. Um, there are a few pockets in the country that have that and they're so blessed, but we're like 50 years behind the loop, you know, uh, with this as opposed to all the resources and usually the recovery communities for sex addiction. Mm. So you have this couple come in and they're in crisis and you stop the bleeding, so to speak. You get the main issues of the sex addiction and the partner trauma treated and addressed. And, and then you're on a stable. And I realize this can take months yeah. and months and even longer, possibly depending on how willing each person is, is to do their work and to get the help that they need. Right. But let's say they're in a stable place and you, uh, you are like, okay, let's start addressing the intimacy anorexia. What do you do? How, I, I realize it's, it, it's complex because it depends on multiple different factors, but in general, what does the process look like to help a, a couple recover from that? Well, the process for me would really, I would let the partner's needs lead because in order to begin to address that, she has to lean in a bit, not a lot, but a bit. And so readiness to do that is, is, is really important. Um, but what I, what I really like about um, intimacy anorexia and kind of the knowledge I have about it is it, it, it caused me to throw out everything I'd ever learned about working with couples. Um, and yeah, and I, I, my, my PhD is in a family, marriage and family kind of setting. So I've got a lot of training about working with couples. Um, yet I kept finding this pocket that just kind of what I've, what I've been trained for is just not seeming to help. And um, kind of the basic philosophy around treatment for intimacy anorexia is um, you've, you've got one person kind of, you know, uh, shutting off the valve for intimacy flow, connection, and another person who's starving. You have to start feeding that person. Like so often in other kinds of paradigms, um, if somebody, let's say it's a, a, a fear of intimacy. If somebody has that, you have to help them get rid of the fear. And then if you help them get rid of the fear, then they'll start nurturing the spouse and the relationship. And so, um, and then the, the relationship can grow. But the dilemma with it is, because it's really what we would call in psychology an approach avoidance issue. If I'm the fearful one and I can avoid my fear by controlling the relationship and the flow of intimacy in it, where's my motivation for wanting to do this couple therapy stuff or actually be um, cooperative with it? Um, if, I, if I do that, then I have to face my fear. And by tr more traditional methods, I'm going to die with my fear because I'm, I'm comfortable not leaning in with the uh, kind of the IA philosophy is no, 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 no. You have to start feeding your spouse. Even if it's, if, if it's tiny little kind of um, exercises. So I, I would call them, D Doug Weiss calls them uh, dailies. I just call them intimacy boosters. Um, and they're designed to be safe exercises. This is not where we are going to talk about the big issues in the relationship. It's not where we're going to talk about the difficult things that are just going to trigger someone or blow up. And it's not like hours of time. I'm going to have, in addition to all the same recovery kinds of activities 
Um, I, I have all my couples do if it's a, if it's a check-in, if it's a, a, a Thanos kind of exercise. Um, I'm also gonna have them doing some small, like 10 to 15 minute things daily with intimacy anorexia that begins to kind of create a bridge. And um, even though it's often kind of feels like, oh, this is not enough for the deprived spouse, um, what it does is allow us to, to start um, uh, expecting of the intimacy anorexic that they do some things in small ways that begin to contribute to their own growth. Mm. Wow. So I know you can't give just one number to this, but typically if two people are both really willing and engaged, how long does it take before the deprived partner starts to feel relief from the intimacy anorexia piece? I think that that's kind of dependent. Um, it's dependent on how hard he's working and how willing he is to lean in and do some of this work. Yeah. And, and notice if you're expecting five, 10 minutes of somebody on a daily basis and they tell you they can't find a five, ten, five or 10 minutes, that's, that's, that's baloney. It is. You know, it's, it's, it, it sort of outs the process when it's sabotage or, um, so if he's actually really leaning in and doing that, yeah. um, and, and it, and she hasn't been, you know, it depends on the level, I think, for her, the, the level of deprivation that she suffered, also the level, level of abuse. You don't like, you know, deal with something for 20 years and, and in two weeks, you're leaning in. So I think it's, it allows also for the slow rebuilding of trust. And, you know, we start at kind of one place, just a little bit like, um, like yoga. You start kind of with one pose, you do it as best you can. And as you practice and you practice and you practice, you start kind of going into those poses in a much deeper kind of way because your skill grows. And so as the anorexic grows, so does the, so do the intimacy boosters. Mm. Yeah. And so it also allows, since it's, it's, it's consistent, it's daily, it also allows her to, to watch behavior. You know, we teach our partners watch behavior. The behavior and words line up. And if he's supposed to come and he's agreed to come, you know, every day at six o'clock and, and, and do, a, do a set of exercises that if you're really not stalling them, maybe 10, 15 minutes and he doesn't show up, that's the truth. Yeah. yeah. So it doesn't matter that he's, you know, he's got his year chip in his sex addiction program, he's still not showing up in the relationship. Um, But if he does show up and shows up every day, now we have a different scenario. So I think there are small, um, small percentage of the people I work with who this happens pretty fast and it's because his, he grows pretty fast. Yeah. Um, There's also the, the, the second and maybe the largest kind of percentage um, that um, it, it's, uh, I believe the term that I've heard Doug Weiss use for that, that level of growth, he calls it glacial. <laughs> and that's because you're really under, you're underlying, you're really working attachment issues. Yeah. I don't really shift as easily or as quickly as we would like. And so would you say that's the bulk like the greatest percentage of let's just say that's those are the people who make it to me 
Maybe, yeah. maybe the fast ones don't so much make it to me, but I've seen it work in both ways. I do, in addition yeah. to ongoing work, I do intensives. And so you can kind of see when there's a real emphasis, you can see the shift uh, pretty rapidly. It's then the, then the work becomes in how do you sustain it? Right. Mm -hmm. So what do you recommend, let's say for our listeners that are struggling with this issue, um, what kind of frequency and what kind of time are we talking each day? And we have provided our, um, the people, the members of our groups, um, the three daily ideas from Doug Weiss, and there's lots of other great intimacy yeah. boosters out there. Um, so how often and how much time do you think is beneficial and, and realizing too, just for the sake of our listeners that you can't just jump through the hoops on this, yeah. like have to, there has to be some lo level of heart engagement, yeah. right? But sometimes you fake it till you make it. There may be some days, right, where you're not feeling like it, but you do it anyways and you act as if. Yeah. And over time. So, um, yeah. So frequency and how much time are we talking? Each time have, a couple does this. I think you have to give it as much weight as, as the sex addiction recovery. Um, um, and I, I think that much like that, that type of recovery, um, people in relationships heal best when both are working that working it. Um, as I say, the, the, the pain and the nature of intimacy deprivation for the spouse, it's really quite different than the sexual betrayal. And so I've had, um, I, I, I love groups, so I'm biased towards group work. Uh, and I've had both, both types of groups for, for quite a long time. And I sometimes have women who choose to be in both groups. I have, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to this group that is the sexual, about sex, the pain of sexual betrayal. And I'm going to go to the intimacy deprivation group because those women get me in a way my other group can't. They they really get what it's like to uh, um, to have efforts sabotaged. Mm. Um, you know, it's it's the energy of abandonment, and they also get that boundaries are a lot tougher if you're in a relationship with somebody who's also intimacy interacts it much much tougher than boundary, boundaries for sex addiction. You know, okay, so tell often, me more about that. That's fascinating. Well, let's say that I'm in a, in a, I'm a spouse of somebody struggling with sex addiction, okay, um, with, with some degree of recovery, and I'm working on my boundaries, and uh, he crosses one of those lines, and let's say, and it's, it really upsets me, and so my boundary quite often might be, and I'm going to go, I'm going to go journal for this, you know, you, you, you go do such and such, what I'm going to do to help myself is I'm going to go journal or I'm going to go call the women in my group. So I'm going to take time away from the relationship. I'm going to do something that in the service of connection, I'm going to temporarily, you know, introduce some distance, some like physical distance between us. Um, and, and we do that for, to, to honor and nurture ourselves. But there's also this, like, he's going to feel a little sting to that and, and learn a little bit of a lesson um, that when he keeps doing that, I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm not going to have dinner with him or I'm not going to go out on date night. Um, what if that doesn't create a sting? Because he doesn't really care. 
Well, he, I wouldn't say he doesn't care, but he does. He distances kind of the goal of intimacy anorexia. Right. So it kind of serves him. It does. And so wait a second, I'm doing the thing that's actually helpful for me, but in doing it, I'm playing kind of right into the, the distance game and, and there's there, it actually rewards it. Oh my goodness. So what, what does she do? Um, I don't know that we've completely cracked the code on that, you know, and that's why you really have to do your work. If you can, if you can, then, um, you know, rather than creating distance, you create contact. Um, so here, you know, you go, go call your, your intimacy anorexia, you know, sponsor. Um, and when you're ready to like affirm me and nurture me, um, I'll be open to that. And then I go do my work so that I'm actually really open to that. Or I decide, or maybe I decide, you know what? Last time this happened, I got upset. And then I'm the one that canceled date night. You know what? I'm going to go, I'm going to make a phone call, you know, to my, to my, uh, to my group. Some of the people from my group, I'm going to get my spirits in order. I'm going to put my makeup on and uh, be waiting at the car at seven o'clock because we're still going. It's finding ways not to lose more of your life. And it takes a lot of work to be able to step into that space. And sometimes you really can't. Like, you know, ideally, if you can step into that space where, where you, you don't reinforce the, the distance, that's great. Sometimes the pain is too big. Um, and we have to do what we have to do. But it's a really complicated thing, you know. Definitely. And that's what I say, we're in it. We're in the infancy. Of just studying this, this issue and figuring out how to yeah, yeah. treat it. Uh, have you written any books on this topic yet? Not yet. We're working on some stuff. You know, I Good. like to create exercises. So we're working on some stuff. I, I will say, and this is maybe a piece that I, I would really like to get out to people who are dealing with this issue. Because I've been doing... I've been running the men's um, sex addiction, intimacy, anorexia recovery groups. That one, the first one we've had is like going on three years now. Um, um, I thought it was frankly going to be kind of that it was going to be totally superficial. I was I was told to expect they'll have lots of material because they'll go through the you know the workbook really really fast because they'll say super super uh, superficial. I've not found that at all. I've Kind of work with men who they need help, but they really want to kind of go to those deeper levels. And of every man who's really kind of stayed for any period of time in in my groups, they all come to say the same thing, which is the intimacy anorexia is actually what's causing the sex addiction. Oh whoa 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 whoa! Yeah, say that again and unpack that. That's really profound. Okay. They also say. Uh, not 100%, but pretty close to 100% when we look at like what they think the causes are, when they've kind of been in the program long enough to have learned some things about themselves. Um, there are two causes that that um, run neck and neck. I never know which man is going to say which one first, but they're almost always the top two. Um, one is attachment issues okay, with, with a parent. Okay. Um, the second, and this one's probably, probably hear this one a little bit more often, is lack of role modeling of a connected 
adult relationship, which is attachment. Yeah. Well, so then isn't that one in the same then? It is. <laughs> okay. Let's so it's really the twins. Let's call them twins. Okay. Yeah. 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 So, so the implication is there's the, there's the quick start, which I kind of described earlier. It's like, he's got to start doing something, leaning into his own fear, but the slower route and why I think it's a slower route, because it's really attachment issues. And, um, that's the piece I'm hoping to make a contribution on. I've also spent some time trying to, to get a little bit of a network of, of colleagues together who have, have an interest in this. And um, that's why that, that 2021 has been the, the year of attachment trainings for me. Um, wow. it's like, I feel like ugh, I've, got to, I've got to really dig into this. I've got to learn this myself so I can bring it to the Intimacy Anorexia Program. I cannot wait to hear what you unpack with this, because I know this is a common thing that occurs in couples and it creates tremendous pain. My experience is largely anecdotal with the women, you know, and, and up close and personal with the women that I work with who are experiencing the pain of this. Um, but I just love that this is an area you're going deep in because it is like this next frontier of supporting and helping couples that are going through this. Absolutely. So I would love for you to unpack the hope that is available to couples who are going through this and maybe what your next step or encouragement would be to them to start to rebuild. Yeah, well, I have a lot of hope. Um, I, I wouldn't, um, you know, it's a slower work. I'm kind of, I, I kind of like stuff that's a little bit faster. So it's a slower kind of work. Um, and I wouldn't be able to do it if I couldn't see the hope um, each and every day. Um, part of my hope is actually in, in doing a lot of work with, with men. Um, and you have to say that, that even though um, NFC anorexia doesn't discriminate um, with gender, um, just because of the nature of my practice, I tend to have many more, um, many more men who are identified as primary intimacy anorexia than I do, do women. So I, I want to be cautious in the way of language around that. Um, I, I have hope because I see it. And it's why I'm probably my strongest recommendation for intimacy anorexia is you've got to be in a group and not just any group, a group that's really focusing on this issue. You know, the, a group where you, the, the pattern of sort of bait and switch um, gets called out. Um, you know, people, I think people uh, heal in tribes. Um, yes. And, and so often if you're only dealing with the sex addiction uh, and you're in a group of people who really totally get that but have no idea about intimacy anorexia, you can inadvertently get reinforced. Um you know, you know, for, for continuing that pattern. If you're the superhero because you got, got, you know, you got sober pretty easy. Um, and all you talk about is like your wife who won't lean in, but you're not letting people know about the ways you sabotage. You're not letting people know about the way you, ways you manipulate. Okay. Do you, how many of these sex addicts are conscious that they are sabotaging and manipulating. Well, what, I know you can't give that. me a number, but like it, that's pretty common, isn't it? That they're what, so. 
let me have a secondary question to that. And that would be for recovery group leaders. Like my husband um, leads groups for men. For recovery group leaders, what kinds of things could they look for? Wow. Or like, how could they be a whistleblower for men who are sabotaging or manipulating if these guys aren't outing themselves? Well, I think I, I think you have to help out, help them out themselves because because human beings, if they are really going to hide it, they're going to hide it. But when, for example, in the intimacy anorexia um, groups that we do, not they don't just check in on acting out; they check in on acting in. Okay, explain um, that. Um, acting in might be, uh, if I know that my spouse's love language is words and I, this, and I can give words out in public, I can praise her in public. Um, but I can't do it in private when she really wants it. And I can't do it when I don't get any reflected glory for being such a great husband. And I withhold the words because I know she wants them. Or um, I withhold touch, you know, and I'm capable of doing it. I'm not a person who, because I, I can do it in public. I could do it before, I could do it before the marriage, okay? Or if, um, if I create a critical story in my head that allows me to justify, you know, and I think most wives can, yeah, I could tell when my husband's even thinking it. I don't think he has to completely say it, okay? If, um, if I won't share my real feelings and if I can do it in the, in a 12 step group, I can do it in my living room yet. I choose not to, um, probably the most blatant example of withholding spirituality is it's not uncommon for me to work with pastors and ministers who have, and will pray with anybody in, in their, their community, but won't pray with their wife at home. Okay. If, um, if, you know, um, assuming that there's not a medical reason or it's not just porn-induced erectile dysfunction, if, if I'm withholding sex from my spouse, and it's not uncommon to hear people talk about years, or if I, um, if I, I, I say that I'm sober, but, um, and I've resumed my sex life with my wife, but I, um, I withhold my heart that there's zero connection and I won't give it. Okay. Um, if I control with money. And so um, there's just a lot of sort of ways of, um, of, of um, that, that are you know, used for acting in. Um, one that's actually not on Doug Weiss's kind of research list, but it's uh, uh, Dorit Reichenthal uh, and I have um, done some research on intimacy anorexia, intimacy deprivation. And according to our research, the number one criteria is hypersensitivity to perceived criticism. Ooh. One day I can ask, hey, honey, can you take the trash out for me? And it's perceived as if, as if um, I just need some help. And the next day I can say, honey, can you take the trash out for me? And it's taken as if I'm criticizing. And so it, what happens for the spouse is that it just gets easier to do it all on, on myself. Okay. Really begins to kind of shut things down in the relationship so that hypersensitivity to perceived criticism is huge. 
um, in the faith community, busyness is huge. I'm going to volunteer for everything that, you know, my church needs of me so that I have zero time to really devote to my relationship. And I'm a hero to the community. Or I'm so exhausted that when I, you know, when I am there and it is time for us, I'm just not present. I'm too tired and too shocked. Um, So busyness is a really huge way that gets culturally reinforced. And so I'm sure a lot of clinicians, coaches, pastors who have these broken couples sitting in their office miss that. They they don't see that as a way for that person to sabotage the connection in the marriage. Well, and and quite often, um, remember, because these aren't people who are, you know, we all know people who have some some deficits, like in connection. These are people who can do it. You know, they know how to be relational. Yeah. So they're usually looked at as like the nicest guy. Darling, you have the, you have the, you just so lucky. You have the best husband. And notice what what happens to me. Like it's really isolating because women in these relationships they stop sharing because nobody sees that guy. They just see Mister Wonderful, who, who talks about how much he really loves me, and it's um, they don't see the the man I'm married to the way he is in the living room. Right get really isolated and so really kind of recognizing that it that that it's um it's an issue and it's a pattern would go a really long way for putting this on the on the on the map for all um you know the recovery world in general do you have any um resources or assessments that you would recommend to our listeners who are therapists and coaches to use to help help them identify this happening in a couple they're working with? Um, well, that's, you know, I don't think we have any really good assessments yet. Um, I have kind of a quick thing that's, that's I, I do have to, to, to Doug Weiss, you can find resources on intimacyanorexia.com. Um, I do have um, the survey that, that uh, Dort Reichenthal and I created for kind of researching intimacy anorexia. I use that as an assessment research, as an assessment piece with with the the spouse to um, kind of see where the pain spots are. Um, And uh, I think that's one of the links that that I I sent to you. um, What what I've had like um, people, other colleagues who want to give it a try is I just say the very first question says, have you, um, uh, if you have a survey ID, ID listed, and so what I, what I have other clinicians do is here's the link for your client, have them put your email address in there, let us know it's complete and we'll send it to you. That's so great. That the therapist or the coach can actually get that data as well and really zero in and see exactly where it's very ex- extensive. So you can see exactly where the pain spots are You can also see if you're also working with the, um, with the anorexic, you can also see what his methods are you know if you if you if you see bullet wounds um in one person you know somebody's shopping yeah so it really helps actually out kind of if i'm working with both pieces of this that survey of kind of what she's experienced helps me know um 
you know, the way the anorexia is operating in the relationship. So the, the survey is just for the partner. It's a part. Yeah. Cause it started yeah. as a research project to kind of see, um, what, you know, what, what are the long-term implications for this? Um, and I realized, oh, this is actually a great actually tool for me to use in, in assessing my own clients. And then it grew from there. I've had people who, who are networking with me, trying to learn this, say, Hey, can you, I'd like to have access to that as well. And so we, we've made that available for them as well. That is going to be so helpful. So, well, thank you so much, Janice, for sharing your expertise, your wisdom, um, the hope with our listeners. 